1: So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners.
0: This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a dietitian, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
1: This is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and I successfully lived through another meet. So, I'm here to talk about
2: it. Nice work. Nice. Uh, This is Dr. Mike D. Nelson, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and uh, down here in South Padre Island, Texas doing some kiteboarding and working.
3: I am Bill Campbell. I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, and I also direct the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory there.
0: That's really unique, Bill. I mean, how many labs focus on physique? Almost nobody does that stuff anymore, it, it seems like to me you know i mean people are interested in it but we've had discussions on the podcast before about so much i think of the current generation is performance driven maybe that's just the the people that i'm bumping into but you know the powerlifting and mma and a lot of the kind of stuff it feels like bodybuilding has seen its golden era but that's not to say there's not thousands of bodybuilders and physique enthusiasts right i mean
3: yeah it seems like the 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 sport of natural bodybuilding seems to be like j- continuing to grow and and people's desire to to kind of live that lifestyle, even if they don't want to step on stage, seems to be at least from my perspective, seems to be as big as it's ever been.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hey, Phil, uh, what do you think? Powerlifting is the same way. Like, there's tons of people who live a powerlifting lifestyle but never intend to compete.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely more more doing it than uh, more acting it than doing it. I guess mm-hmm. how you put it.
0: The reason I'm curious is just because, to me, powerlifting has a little bit lower barrier to entry as far as you don't have to diet for half a year, you know, and get your body fat down to five percent and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? but
1: there's still a ton of that, you know. I'll step on the stage on the platform once I'm strong enough, you know. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: once you're strong enough, as opposed to yeah, you know, once I'm big enough. I'll get on the posing dais. You know? Yeah,
1: that's like the people in my gym. Like, I'm, I'm going to come to your gym once I'm strong enough. That's just so stupid. It's backwards. You <laughs> go to the gym to get strong. <laughs> you know? Right. That's the reason. That's the whole reason to come.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what, Phil. Let's – we at least have to touch on this. I want to devote a whole episode yeah. to it. But uh, let's just talk briefly about your meat. So you punched up some PRs, right?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, I didn't PR bench, but that's probably never going to happen again. So – um Everything else was, was pretty good. Uh, I weighed in at two seventy two point nine Friday. I woke up Saturday at 283.5. Nice. <laughs> I, was, I had like 10 dinners. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so considerably heavier the next day. Felt good. Um, main thing I had, I, oddly enough, I like ate fish and rice and Gatorade all day the day before. So, hmm. um, but that's what my stomach can handle. So, I had been having some really bad indigestion. Uh, so, did that, came in, uh, opened at 677 on squat. That was easy. When 722 got out of position, had them take it, did 722 for a third, got it easy. Uh, so, there's some left on the table there. Called it on my second bench at like 360, just because I knew my shoulder was going to come out. Right, so I your just shoulder. Scratched on the third one. Mm mm-hmm. um, I called my deadlifts very conservative just because I didn't know how I'd feel after squatting seven twenty two. And uh opened at six fifty and pulled way too hard and went backwards. So I couldn't <laughs> I was going way too fast, so it just kept going. Overdid uh, it. <laughs> I had to drop the bar or I was gonna fall over. Uh so went ahead and jumped to seven hundred and hit that easy, but where they reattached my hamstring I had a little cramp uh and I knew it was like a one or a two. But I knew if I went higher, I'd be in trouble. So I called it there. So I hit it 700 deadlift. And that would be my first time. That's well below my PR of 780. But uh, that's my first time deadlifting 700 after squatting over 700. So uh, yeah. it was a good day. So, and you walked away whole. I mean. Yeah. Getting a seventeen seventy six total on a poverty bench isn't bad. So poverty you know, everybody beach. else I'm lifting against is in mid mid fours and fives on bench, and mine just won't ever be there again. So uh yeah, it was a good day. So,
2: I've got the new hip.
1: Yeah, new hip, reattached hamstring. So Yeah. You know, and
0: you're not asking good. you're not asking for your own special class of post, no. yeah, post- listen, artificial. Like, I'm
1: also a master. I'm also a master, but I don't lift master, so I lift open. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it went well. Sweet.
0: All right, yeah, well, definitely, everybody, we're going to catch up with Phil with a lot of gory details about how we, you know, set short and long-term goals for this one and everything. We'll do that next week because we want to get to Dr. Campbell. Um, yep. In fact, in just in interest of time, I've got two news bits, and I'll let you guys vote on this. Would you rather hear about, well, I guess relevant to what Phil just said, um, tendon? protein turnover compared to muscle or would you rather hear about clever ways to reduce sugar intake tendon tendon Tendons. <laughs> okay strength and muscle sport news here we go now this is the one um everyone before we hit the record button i had just mentioned briefly to dr campbell and dr nelson that they've probably heard this but i'm playing catch up here uh, i actually saw this on twitter and the person who was posting this, they were sort of, I almost felt like they were shaming everybody if they didn't know this. And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know tendons turned over every bit as fast as muscle tissue. I just thought because of blood flow and other things, the protein synthetic rates would be a little slower. But this person's like, this has been going on for a long time. People need to catch up. Well, oh, okay, I'm, I'm trying. Um, here's the title. Protein Synthesis Rates of Muscle, Tendon, Ligament, Cartilage, and Bone Tissue. In Vivo in Humans. So this is by Joey Smeets, S-M-E-E-T-S, and a bunch of colleagues, brand new, November of this year. Um, Here's the the thing. It says, skeletal muscle plasticity is reflected by a dynamic balance between protein synthesis and breakdown. Um, They recruited six healthy patients that were about 60 years old, Scheduled to undergo a one-sided total knee arthroplasty. Uh, they subjected them to a primed continuous infusion of labeled phenylalanine, right, so they could see how much was incorporated into their tissues. Let's see here. Um, tissue samples were obtained during surgery. And again, they looked at that incorporation of the labeled phenylalanine into the tissues, uh, compared it to muscle tissue protein synthesis. So here's what they're saying. They're concluding tendon, bone, bone. Cartilage, anterior and posterior ligament, and menisci tissue protein synthesis rates did not significantly differ from skeletal muscle protein synthesis rates. It says synthesis rates in various musculoskeletal tissues are within the same range of skeletal muscle, uh, ranging between 0.13% per hour in vivo in humans. So, again, what I was looking at on Twitter was that, you know, there's this usual assumption that tendons turnover much more slowly because of and, and well in cartilage as well because of less vascularization and things like that but uh, just a couple of tidbits from the paper here it says skeletal muscle tissue plasticity is achieved again dynamic equilibrium uh, between synthesis and breakdown temporary changes in either protein synthesis and or breakdown result in net muscle protein accretion or loss Uh, And then they go on to say stable isotope technology, like they were using, has been applied for several decades to show that uh, skeletal muscle tissue turns over at a rate of approximately 1% to 2% per day. Uh, It says, though widely applied in skeletal muscle research, to a lesser extent uh, as far as, in fact, very few data on in vivo protein synthesis rates in other musculoskeletal tissues. So it says, of course, rehab requires plasticity in all tissues involved. And that should make sense to all you guys, right? It's not just if you want to have your knee rehab after a reattachment or like Phil reattached the origin of his hamstrings, that tissue needs to have some turnover, right? Otherwise, rehab wouldn't work. So it says several studies have assessed tendon protein synthesis in vivo in humans using stable isotopes, and they list quite a few here. Clearly, connective tissue plasticity plays an important role in determining musculoskeletal strength. And functional capacity. So again, they talked about they recruited the six people that were going to undergo surgery so they could get the tissue samples. Let me uh, just jump to one other comment here uh, in the discussion. We showed that average basal protein synthesis rates of various musculoskeletal tissues are within the same range as skeletal muscle. And then they go on and they say data suggests that tendon tissue has similar protein synthesis characteristics as skeletal muscle and may therefore also express a a similar level of plasticity to external stimuli. In other words, trainable tendon, you know, size and strength, or at least strength, I would guess. In agreement, exercise has been reported to increase tendon protein synthesis rates, indeed. To our knowledge, no previous study has applied stable isotope methodology to assess fractional protein synthetic rates in cartilage and menisci in vivo in humans, These structures have always been suggested to turn over slowly. It says cartilage has been considered an essentially permanent structure with little to no ability to remodel uh, after a certain age, at least. Uh, It says, however, different proteins and protein fractions within a tissue do likely turn over at different rates. So they're just trying to point some of that out. So this is, again, a human knee study. They say it's been previously... Uh, observed that things like gelatin supplementation can stimulate collagen synthesis following exercise or that collagen supplements have been reported to increase collagen content uh, in the knee of osteoarthritis patients. Uh, And in conclusion, right, it says fractional, again, tissue protein synthesis rates of tendon, bone, cartilage, and ligament do not differ substantially from muscle tissue synthesis rates, suggesting that these musculoskeletal tissues may uh, actually exhibit a greater level of tissue plasticity than generally believed. Is that news to you guys? Phil, I guess you often have said, you know, you, you got to be careful. You get massive muscle hypertrophy, like somebody uses anabolics or something, and then they pull a tendon off the bone. But that's, of course, not the only reason. But I, I <laughs> it, it
1: sounds odd, though. It sounds odd that well, there's something like that. You'd have to look at the rate of, you know— the, the anabolics, of course, increase the rate of muscle tissue, but probably much greater than the increase in tendon tissue. Yeah, disproportionately. The tissue does remodel, then, but if, the, if the, the muscle tissue is remodeling six times faster, we've got a problem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, this makes it sound like protein synthesis is on par. Uh, Bill, have you, have you heard much about this?
3: Different tissues like this and their protein synthetic rates? No,'m that not being my primary area of research. I, I think like you, I, just, I was taught that you're not, that your tendons, your cartilage, yeah, was, was slower, and that's why we see a lot of injuries with you know, infrapatellar tendon tears, and um, just that the muscle progresses at a faster rate than what the tendons are able to handle the force. So that's what I've been taught. So this is news to me, and apparently it's news to a lot of people because they said this is the first time they're showing this.
0: Yeah, well, there seems to be some double talk here. I haven't done a deep dive into this paper, but they mentioned several other papers, but then they say this is the first one at least to look at all of these tissues in the way that they did. But yeah, I thought it was news to me, and like I said, there was the, the guy on Twitter and You know, sometimes I'm not saying this is true of this guy, but sometimes these guys they find a study and then they become sort of know-it-alls. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm admittedly playing up catch-up with this stuff. You know, Uh, when Phil was just talking, I was thinking about not just disproportionate um, hypertrophy with something like anabolics. Throughout the years, I was also taught, and you can find some evidence or at least comments on this in the literature that anabolics might um, actually harm. Right. The strength of a tendon because of the way that the tissues are, uh, the cells are lined up and all that kind of stuff. But, um, Mike, what about you? Any thoughts about this protein synthesis rates in being the same in muscle, tendon, ligament, cartilage and bone?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm probably pretty guilty of quoting the uh, muscle remodels a lot faster than soft tissue. And then that's why using uh, gelatin or collagen from Keith Barr's lab, you know, Dr. Shaw, their stuff uh, before exercise is beneficial Um, and I did look into this again. Keith Barr had a very good, uh, interview, maybe a couple of months ago I listened to, and he was talking about this study, which is from Luke Van Loon's lab in the Netherlands. And I went looking for the study and I couldn't find it. And then I forgot about it and I had it on my list of studies to look at again. So I see that it's out now. Um, so I wouldn't say that this is, everybody knows this at all. I don't even think people even know that you know, gelatin and possibly collagen can help with soft tissue remodeling. You know, that's some work Dr. Keith Barr's done for a couple of years now or longer. Um, So I'd say it's relatively new. And then I think the earlier stuff, too, was looking at Achilles heel. And I'd have to double check this, but I think the inside part of the Achilles heel has a massively different turnover rate than the outside part. And I think that was based off of some earlier studies. And that may be where some of the, soft tissue takes a lot longer to turn over. Um, so I'd have to, I just found this study right now when you mentioned it, I'll have to go through and read and see if that's one of the tissues they looked at. It doesn't sound like that it was. That's so not a very common surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may depend on the tissue, right? Because Achilles is just a massive amount of, of soft tissue, like the size of your pinky or bigger. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's interesting. And then the next question that keeps going through my brain is exactly what you guys said, is why do we seem to see more soft tissue Injuries, then, right? So, my next question is if we take like a whey protein or something like that, is that good enough to promote uh, tissue anabolism in both tissues? Some of the stuff I've read would say probably not, that it's more specific to muscle. Some of the other stuff I've read said no, it's specific to both tissues. And so, yeah, yeah, sort of stuff I thought I knew now. I don't know if I know anything anymore. See, so. yeah. I've-
0: <laughs> You're a scientist, right? We, we try yeah. to revise conclusions based on emerging evidence, you know, and I think that's what makes us different from politicians. We don't just double down. No, no, there's no change in, you know, protein synthesis. They do say here, as I'm looking at this protein content of the tissue matters. It says skeletal muscle averaging 74%, um, bone, I, I believe here between 16 and 31%, um, And then that's compared with the protein contents of tendon, ligament, cartilage, and menisci uh, that range between 79 and 98% protein as far as dry weight. So Mm. there's that kind of stuff to consider as well. And again, they talked about specific proteins turning over at different rates. We're all familiar with that. And maybe that's got something to do with the ruptures too. Maybe it's some of those more structural, integral type proteins that, that do turn over more slowly. But, yeah, this is from PLOS1, everybody, so Smeets at all. Go take a look. Uh, you know, maybe this is a crowdsourcing thing where we can have some listeners. We have, obviously, some highly trained listeners listening to the show, too, and maybe they would like to dig into this along with us. But, yeah, there seems to be this sort of double talk in this paper about this is the first time some of this has been shown, and then they'll go back and they'll say the protein synthesis of several tissues have already been described you know, and then list a bunch of different studies. So I, I have a feeling it's just like in vivo, real time, maybe that's what's what's newest about this. So
2: yeah, and last comment, too, is for anyone's in fresh tissue dissection, when you look at how much fascia is around everything and how everything is more interconnected than what the nice little neat pictures in the textbooks show you, then you the next question I wonder is like, well, how much of, you know, the fascia affects it and for force transfer and proprioception and all that kind of stuff too. So, but still it's a super interesting data and very cool that they're able to, to get that. Cause that's probably not an easy study to do. You know, real world
0: application here. Is, yeah. uh, my interest kind of to your point about these are complex systems, but one of my takeaways I, I think from this is that if they're, if there wasn't some decent amount of protein synthesis and breakdown, or turnover, in these tissues, rehab wouldn't work,
2: right? Yeah, you'd, you'd break a tissue and never heal. Yeah. So it's just, what are the rates of it and how does it compare to other tissues? Yeah.
0: Because I, I often tell students in the classroom, you know, you think that bone tissue is like that plastic permanent skeleton in the corner, and that's not, you know, it. there's turnover. It's slow, but there's turnover in these tissues. And, but yeah, to say that it's the same as as muscle tissue itself. Yeah, these are 60-year-olds undergoing a knee surgery. You know, again, this could be a population specificity thing too, and not just because of the use of anabolics, but Phil just pulled 700-ish off the ground. That's not something 60-year-olds do, and you're asking you're asking different things of these tissues, you know, so. Anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I'll table this other uh, study because I want to catch up with Dr. Campbell. So, um without getting too much into our topic of the day, and I was remiss, we're just going to basically talk about Dr. Campbell's recent uh, research, essentially, uh, with diet patterns and um, physique and resistance training kinds of things and diet interconnections. But um, without getting in the weeds on specific research stuff, Bill, um, what's been going on with you in the past couple of years? Cause I think it's been a, uh, maybe two years since we've had you on.
3: Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's been, I'm, I'm more focused on dieting studies. And if I were to just to say what my lab does in one sentence, my research applies to people who want to optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So the way that I describe that is I don't, I study bodybuilders, bikini competitors, physique athletes, because they're so knowledgeable about how to lose fat, how to gain muscle. So I study them to learn, and then essentially I conduct research in people who strive or who would like to look like a bodybuilder or bikini competitor, but who don't necessarily want to step on stage mm-hmm. and live, let's say, the a little less of the dedicated lifestyle that you have to do to maintain, to, to get that physique to be on stage. Yep, yep. Uh, We often, over the years, have sort of
0: championed having people at least consider putting their name on the dotted line, as we say, and do a reverse countdown, you know, and compete in something. But I I know when Rob was on the show, uh, Fortress used to really champion just training. Like, you can love training. You can throw your whole life into this kind of thing and not necessarily want to have that sort of, I don't know, external validation or whatever. I mean, obviously, if you compete, it's confidence building. I mean, and Phil has competed often. As we've done the show more more seldomly in recent years, I think. But but in any case, I think there's a real place for that, right? Because there's thousands, tens of thousands of people in that category, that physique category. They want to be lean or build muscle, and they're going to ask questions like periodizing at different times of the year. You know, prioritizing muscle versus fat uh, changes and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I exactly yeah. So I'd, I'd say my research speaks to that population. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I think we need people doing that. Um, what about you yourself? Have you, has your professing impacted your own lifting and that kind of stuff? Uh, does, does it take away your time to lift or does it
3: motivate you yourself or what about you? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I, I did a bodybuilding show when I was younger and I lived the, the lifestyle for, for years. Since I've been a professor, I'm, I'm not a gym rat. I I lift weights. I probably on average about three times per week over the year. And I've gone periods where if I'm working on a grant deadline or something, I don't even make it to the gym for a a week or two. And then at other times I'm in there five days per week. So it's, it's kind of an ebb and flow over my life. Um, I would like to say that my research has informed what I do. And I think to a large extent it has, Mm -hmm. um, much less so than other people's research so yeah it's and and that i'm always careful like okay as i'm designing new studies i have to be careful of bias as well it's like well of course i know this works so i'm like well i gotta be careful i'm the one designing the study here yeah yeah <laughs> because i think it works i you know you don't want to design a study in such a way that it that it that it stacks the the outcome in one manner or another so I mean that's controlled for by the sense that I don't do the data collection and 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 now my lab is very collaboratively based so my students with my input we're designing all of our studies now based on the 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 other current literature um but unlike you I think you've competed multiple times over the last few years is that right Oh me um I competed the last time in 2011 and I knew oh, t- that that was my 20- last hurrah yeah um but, but I, okay, so let me rephrase that when I see you at conferences about every other year, you look like you're <laughs> contest i don 't want to say contest ready, but you know <laughs> man lifestyle well
0: that's true, and i mean and that's why what you do in the lab I think speaks to me because most of my life has been infrequent com- competing yeah I might have competed i literally maybe a dozen times in my whole life. And usually that's because I would do two or three shows each time I prepared. But, you know, being quote-unquote hormonally challenged, I wasn't going to get on stage every year basically putting myself through all that dieting and then show off a similar amount of muscle mass, you know. So I think uh, one thing that I think Phil and myself both have illustrated over the years is that you continue uh, to progress in the strength sports. I did my best by far in my 30s and 40s. You know, and so when I was yeah. early 40s, I'm like, I'm done. Uh, I, you know, Bill Pearl once said, I think he said when he was 55, I'm not going to take my shirt off in public anymore. He said something like that just because, you know, it's inevitable. You get a little wrinkly or I imagine I'm powerlifting. The joints just, you know, it takes a toll after a while <laughs> and that kind yeah. of stuff. So eventually you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to be post competitive. And then what? And again, to your research, you you still live that lifestyle. You're a lifer. You're still going to do it you know? And so, yeah, I try to have some level of self-respect. Like I, if I get much, if I get under 200 pounds or I start getting over 200 pounds and sloppy, I'm going to adjust things, right? Because I just, I can't, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's a psychological problem, but I just can't, I don't want to be outside of that range too much. You know, if I'm, if I'm too lean or, and small, I feel small. And if I'm too fat my blood pressure starts going up and that kind of stuff and my blood lipids start going out of whack, then I don't want that either. So yeah, it becomes a lifestyle kind of thing, I guess.
3: Yeah. And then another hard part, at least for me, and I think this is true and you, you can, you can agree or disagree, but when you have competed in the past, that's kind of like your, your mark in the sand in terms of, oh, that's, that's what I look like. And when you don't compete anymore, that's still your reference point. So that's, and I think a lot of bodybuilders struggle with that. No, yeah, that's true. I, there, I, you have
0: this sort of salient self-image. In one sense, I think you could look at that positively or negatively. In a positive way, I think I know how to get lean. You know, So when I'm feeling a little bit over fat, I'm like, well, I know how to do it. I've repeatedly proved to myself I can get lean, really lean over the years. So I can do this. And I think there's a lot to that. Just like I think if Phil were to take time off, lose some strength, there'd be very little doubt in his mind. Yeah, I can do this. I can put on some some strength and size pretty quickly, but then you just have to have the wisdom. I think the wisdom kicks in. You're like, do I really want that? You know, do I want to <laughs> risk another tear? But you, yeah. you know, you know what I mean, Phil. You've got the, you've got the confidence that you could do it. Oh you know? yeah, yeah. Because um, that's like Bill said. That's kind of you. That's. But yeah. I can also see how that could go wrong. They get these guys bodybuilding and powerlifting. They can't let go, and you're like, oh man, it, it's time to. Maybe it's time to let go. I'm not saying give up, you know, but at some point, age and other things, you start doing what I call fighting the long defeat. You're, you know, you're not going to give up. Um, and you can slow a lot of those biomarkers of aging and you can feel and look great. But, yeah, I mean, to continue to c- try to compete after a certain point, and I'm I'm not taking away from people that compete in their 50s or 60s. I think that's awesome. But, damn, I've already been at this for 35 years, you know. So I don't know how – I'm not really in a place where I need to do it that much more. And I guess, Phil, you're probably wrestling with that
1: right now, right? Yeah, that's like I told – after I pulled that 700 this last weekend, I did the math, and it's 14 years ago I pulled my first 700. Wow. Wow. Every meet since then, for the last 14 years, I've pulled at least 700 pounds. Yeah. I was like, man, that's a long time. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it is. But it is a challenge to – to to Bill's point, you know, like staying motivated and what are your expectations? How do you, how do you adjust? Like Bill, you and I both full-time teachers, right? We're professors. So we have this other aspect of our personality. We can take a lot of those same passions and put them into research and teaching and that kind of stuff. You know, it's not always just about your physique personally. Uh, It's a way to change gears, but not, not everyone has that. You know, they don't always have this other side to their, their uh, persona that they can sort of change gears, still talk about the same stuff and be fascinated, but it's not always personally getting on opposing dais. That's a
3: great perspective. That's
0: um, well, I think everybody like. Eventually, you start to become more of a. For us, it's teacher. For Phil, it's going to be coach. I imagine, right? Like, I'm not saying you won't compete or be like, all right, whippersnapper Let me just put you in your place here. You know. Uh, with a a display of strength or something like that. But on some level, yeah, you do shift gears, you know. but um, I'll tell you what. let's go to break and then we're gonna come back uh, because we're kind of going on here. Uh, and we'll talk uh, to Dr. Campbell uh, specifically about some of his research so people know what's happening in his lab.
1: Hello there ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the uh, Keto eBook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. I can't stop feeling, some of us don't understand, how lucky we are to be living in this life. Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress-Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rated in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button
3: near the bottom of the page.
0: or. Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood.
1: Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in, $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays.
0: All right, folks, we're back. We're talking to Dr. Bill Campbell, and we're going to get a little behind the scenes with his physique lab, uh, literally, research into this sort of thing. So um, let's just start with open question to you, Dr. Campbell. What are you looking at lately? What's jumping out at you? Um, Anything that you want to riff on, really?
3: Yeah, so um, just even outside the science Part of my lab. I my lab is very student focused. It's student directed. I have my um, my current master student Madeline Seedler. She's my research coordinator. So it's funny. I love the science, but I get just as much enjoyment out of just working with my students. And I, I like to think that I'm training fitness professional leaders in mm-hmm. the future. So I'm at a professional crossroads to to some extent, like I used to design all of our studies and now for the last probably year, year and a half, it's like, well, I'm not really creating leaders as well when I'm here calling, you know, when I'm calling all the shots. So I, I don't know if you can attest to that, but that's been a great shift in my mindset and I'm I'm loving it. It's they're taking ownership of it. So that's, that's, again, that's outside the science part of it in terms of what we're doing. It's very diet focused and it's diet focused on people who are not overweight or people who aren't obese. So again, it's essentially it's people who are relatively lean, who want to optimize their physiques, who want to look even better or lose even more fat. So that's kind of the niche that I'm in. And the directions that we go are kind of what's, what are the bodybuilding coaches What are their questions? What are they seeing in the trenches? So I like to talk to coaches, competitors and say, okay, what are you, what are you thinking? What's going on? And then I take that. So it's kind of like, this is what's the the current makeup of, of the industry. And then I like to do it in the lab. So by default, I'm always two or three years behind of what people are actually doing, but I'm validating if what they're doing is working. So I'll give an example. Uh, One thing that I think we can all attest to was what used to be highly debated was protein intakes. Is, um, is high, are high protein intakes better for, to gain muscle? Are they unhealthy? So one of the first studies that I did in aspiring female physique athletes was I gave one group real high protein, 2.5 grams per kg, another group very low protein, 0. 0.9, and not surprising to us, the higher protein group gained significant amounts of lean body mass. Um, they actually lost some fat, too, while eating 300 more calories. So that was kind of the first physique study that, that we that we did in my lab. And then we completed a flexible dieting study. So that was, and again, that still continues to be a very popular uh, subset of, of the dieting culture is this, you know, macro-based or if it fix your macros, a flexible dieting concept. So then we did a study on that. And that kind of has informed the way that I eat. Not only that, we employ flexible principles into all of our studies now. That study is submitted to peer J. It's under review right now. And I'm just hopefully waiting for an acceptance or hopefully not too many reviews. So that study, whether it's there or somewhere else, should be published within the next few months. Uh, taking that... The most, I'd say, for the last two years and likely going forward, we're really jumping into this diet break phenomenon. And the the way that I would discuss that is I think one of the worst things that people can do is diet for week after week, month after month, getting to where, you know, they're six months on a caloric deficit, never stopping. Now, I could be wrong because there's, there's not a lot of studies to to, to refute that. There are a few. Um, the, if you're familiar with the Matador study in obese males, there was a Wing and Jeffrey study where they forced people to go on a break. And in those two studies, they not only found a maintenance of resting metabolic rate after the diet, they found um, greater lean body mass retention and a more efficient rate of fat loss when they were dieting. So the most recent study that we did, and again, this one is under preparation, we, we had one group diet for six weeks straight, and this was in males and females. The other group, we said, you're gonna diet for six weeks, but only five days per week. So you're gonna take the weekend and you're gonna increase your calories back to maintenance levels. And we're, we want that all in the form of carbohydrates. So I'm referring to that as a diet refeed study. You could call it a diet break study. It's just they're taking a break on the weekend, which, by the way, is how I live my life. I tend to eat more food on the weekends. And what we found, and we presented this at the ISSN conference in 2018, and and again, the study's not published yet, the group that did the refeeds on the weekend. They had a – they were able to maintain their metabolic rate significantly better than the straight group, the straight dieting group. Interesting. And they maintained their muscle mass at a significantly better manner than the other group. Well, Bill, let me let me ask you about that. Uh, this
0: in some ways sounds a little bit like uh, Mauro De Pascal stuff with uh... – You know, cyclic, ketogenic.
3: that what he did? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, Just, you know, you're talking about taking industry stuff and trying to reproduce it in the lab. Do you think some of that has to do with refilling your glycogen stores and that somehow helping preserve the muscle
3: or uh, reinvigorate training the, the next week? Yeah, so we, well, let me also make this, this is an important methodological design. The people that were doing their refeeds on the weekend they, they had the diet a little harder Monday through Friday. So they were reducing their calories by 35% Monday through Friday. And then they were back to a hundred percent of their calories on the weekends. The other group was a 25% reduction every day. So that at the end of each week, both groups had an average of a 25% caloric reduction. Now, in terms of why Yes, it, um, one thing we know that their training volume wasn't significantly better, so there was no difference in training volume. But maybe they were be, maybe they because of the glycogen levels, they weren't as fatigued. Um, the other, the other issues, just psychologically, they felt more refreshed after every, after, you know, after every Sunday, Sunday refeed. Yeah, good point. Uh, and they're just not catabolic as long. Like I, I look at a, at a diet as everything about a caloric deficit is catabolic. The only things you can do to create an anabolic stimulus on the body is resistance training and protein intake and then getting out of that caloric deficit. So this group, they were, in theory, not catabolic for two days out of the week. So that's another potential reason for for what we've seen. Right, lose metabolic rate. It was 40 calories versus 80. That was Mm -hmm. a significant difference. They did lose a little bit of muscle mass. It was like instead of four pounds, it was like two pounds or one and a half versus three. So I'm not saying that they, you know, that they they didn't body recomp here, but the the suppression of metabolic rate, the loss of muscle mass, was better retained in that group. Yeah. Let me let me bring Mike in on this
0: because Mike, you're. I, I, you're probably chomping at the bit because Bill's talking about flexibility and that sort of thing, and yeah. if it fits if your macros. So. <laughs> and from your perspective of metabolic flexibility, um, how does this process? Maybe just some of your analysis on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess my my bias is that I think designing something that is more metabolically flexible makes sense, especially if you're looking at health parameters. Also, um, so having days of you know higher carbohydrates and maybe having more resistance training on those days for performance and things of that nature. Or, I mean, I'll even have some clients go, you know, do a 19 to 24 hour fast. You know, so we're cutting out a whole day's worth of calories. We're pushing insulin levels pretty low. Uh, Initially, they're just going to do some, you know, low to moderate intensity cardio, right? So we're trying to ramp up the body's ability to use fat and obviously put them in more of a caloric deficit. But what I've noticed with that too, and again, it's anecdotal, is the rest of the week doesn't seem to be too bad for them, especially when you start having to get down to lower amounts of calories. Um, and most people, if they have the option of just you know, taking out one day's worth of calories by fasting and then having the other days be not as bad versus chronically always being low, uh, Bill can probably speak to this too. I think just the mental component of that plays a big factor with compliance. And I think there, you know, we're starting to find that there probably is some physiology to back that up. And the last part, too, I was down in Bill's lab a, a while ago. It was maybe a year and a half ago or something like that. And he was talking about the abstract he just discussed. So if I have clients who were trying to get you know, significantly leaner and they would kind of reach a plateau, um, I did what he described where two days would be pretty high-carb. High uh, one of those would usually be a lifting day. One of them would be like a pretty brutal set of intervals on the rower normally. And then the rest of the days would be a little bit lower. And anecdotally so far, people appear to hold on to you know lean mass better, and they appear to make a little bit better gains with that. Uh, they usually report that it doesn't feel as bad because the days that they're going to be training harder, they have higher amounts of carbs, so it doesn't feel quite as bad. Um, so I have used that a fair amount, and, you know, again, it appears to work pretty good.
0: Okay, let me I have a couple of questions from what both of you guys are saying. So let me ask Bill and and then you Mike. This flexibility thing, whether it's caloric, you know, refeeds or macro distribution, doesn't this fly in the face a little bit of the super popular keto folks, you know, that are all about fat adaptation and I would argue they're maybe less flexible in that they're they're on these diets that tend to be lower total energy intake, very fat focused um you know now i am I'm, I'm working on a book chapter right now for bill in fact that talks about people who conflate you know keto and fat ad, uh, adaptation and that sort of thing with actual performance enhancements and stuff which you know i think is sort of dubious it's my personal bias um yep. but Bill, what's your? What, how would you respond to that? Like this huge popularity of no, you get fat adapted, and you just focus on the super low carb keto type thing, because that seems less flexible to me from a calorie and macro perspective. Is that fair?
3: Yo, it's, it's definitely less flexible. Um, I my dieting philosophy, or the way that I look at it, is if if you can handle a ketogenic diet. Which I don't think most people can, but if if it works for you and you can maintain that, then that's better. I think then great. Do what I dieting is hard enough. I don't want to introduce rules and barriers that just because this is what the research says you have to do, if you can't follow it, it's nothing's going to work. The best plan that you can't follow is worthless. Yeah, yeah, or not not so. I'm I. I don't believe that ketogenic diets are superior for fat loss when equated for caloric intake and, and protein. I do think there's data to suggest that they are better for suppressing the appetite. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that, that can be a huge benefit. Um, but in terms of it being flexible, no, there's nothing flexible about that approach. Mm-hmm. But for some people, that may be best. And, and, and I would say, then go for it. Knock yourself out.
0: Right, Mike. Let me ask you then: Do you think this is a sort of a a nutrigenetic thing, where a lot of it's about some people just genetically do better, or because I think you're more or less of the opinion that flexibility is just a good thing? It's a robust survival kind of thing, and it could be good for most people, right? Do you think it's the people that are just genetically predisposed to do well on the really low carb, high fat, all the time kind of diets? that are the most vocal about it or like what are your thoughts about a lot of this stuff with flexibility versus less flexible, super low carb?
2: Yeah. I mean, my bias is that if, if we go all the way back to, you know, how is your body probably wired? Like what is the main sort of principles at a high level it's, it's based on. And I would say survival is probably pretty high if not at the top of that list. And if you can handle large influxes of carbohydrates without going you know hyper and hypoglycemic from a health standpoint and just performance, that's good. If you can handle maybe longer periods of time without any calories and still kind of function, you know that's probably good, right? So those are both extreme ends of the spectrum. Uh, like what Bill said, I do have a couple of clients. I've had clients who have done a ketogenic approach. Um, if they're going to do that, my first question is, do you have anything for performance that's speed and power-based? And if you're okay giving up, you know, single-digit percentage off of that, then we're probably fine, right? Because I don't want them to be like, oh, I'm doing a ketogenic and I want to get, like, a my all-out best time on a 200-meter or 400-meter sprint or, you know, something like that, uh, which, you know, most busy people aren't, you know, that motivated by speed and power stuff. And then I also... Well, they have them do specific testing to see are they actually in ketosis if that's the goal you know are your bhb levels you know going up that sort of thing because i found a lot of people hang out in this sort of metabolic no man's land where they say they're doing keto their blood ketones aren't really that high they're doing a low carb diet their fat's probably not high enough to be ketogenic they feel like crap their performance kind of sucks i don't think they get sort of the possible appetite suppression effects of you know, higher levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate, that type of thing. Yes. Um, so I think it can be useful. The other caveat, too, is I've worked with a fair amount of people who have done a ketogenic diet for six to sometimes two years and have decided on their own before they found me that they want to transition out of it. And that can be a little bit hairy and can take a while, too, right? Because if you all of a sudden just dump a bunch of carbohydrates into the system— Right, your muscle is, is not as insulin sensitive to it. But right. It's done that on purpose to mm-hmm. spare glucose for your brain. Yeah, it's not a pathology per se, but there are you know, a little bit of a a hard transition with it. And your last comment too is that what I've noticed and it's anecdotal is that a lot of people who wanna do a ketogenic diet who really wanna increase their body's, you know, use of fat. Their fasted, low to moderate-ish a VO2 max type aerobic performance just sucks, and those people have a really hard time doing more fasting and doing more of a ketogenic type diet. So if we kind of look at aerobic metabolism, I think may turn out to be a, a rough marker for that. Um, so how you know you can look at literature of fat max and things of that nature. Uh, my gut feeling is that I think that's going to play a big role. So if I have someone who you know says, hey, I'm thinking about doing a ketogenic type diet in the future, I will probably try to test their VO2 max, try to get them up to a little bit of a better level. I may even have them do that you know, fasted to try to drop liver glycogen levels or look at their RER. It depends on how fancy you want to get. But I think just that base capacity of your aerobic metabolism to run, especially using fat, I think is a big factor with that.
0: You know, you guys, as somebody who's studied exercise physiology and nutrition for so long, I see so many similarities, like a lot of the classic training principles that like the adaptation principles that we hear about in exercise science, like, um, you know, reversibility, or specificity; yeah. these things are also so true of diet. I mean, it's essentially what you guys oh, are kind yeah. of suggesting is that the specificity principle in exercise might say that you know your body adapts in the direction of your training, and it's. But I think a lot of time my students, I need to remind them that's true of diet as well. If you're on a really low carb diet, you know your systems, both digestive and muscular, if you will, uh, or you know tissue based metabolism they change and they adapt according to your diet right glucose transporters are trainable you know ask or jukendrup stuff about you know how you yeah. can you can train glucose transporters in the gut and to your point you know if you just dump a bunch of carbs in a system where it's all it's dealt with is fat for the last year That's that's going to be a mess without a certain adaptation principle, right? The specificity principle is a dietary principle too. Uh, I mean, look at the RER of people. You know, after several days on a low-fat diet, their basal RER goes down. You know, they become better fat oxidizers. And then people that you put them on a high-carb diet, and after a period of time, um, you know, it comes back up. Uh, But let me let's get one last like round through everybody here um, because. There's something else that Bill does that I think is very important and doesn't get seen much, and that's that – well, let me start with a a brief story. When I did my dissertation defense, one of the guys on my committee, he was uh, a biology prof. He was an endocrinologist, and he said, Lonnie, your problem here is that you're trying to knock young, healthy people out of homeostasis. You're trying to get changes in these people where their metabolisms are so robust – why don't you study someone with a broken metabolism? You're much likely to find effects. Uh, so kind of to Bill's earlier point about like, you'll find research on obese people, you know, and what diet does to them or pre-diabetic people, like with some of the coffee research I've done. And it becomes almost remarkable when you can see, you can see uh, responses and adaptations in the young, healthy people. Again, because they're, they tend to be, there's like in the 90th percentile for everything. You know, think about college students that we work on so many times, from flexibility to body comp to strength to whatever, they're already in the upper echelons as far as, you know, percentile rankings and stuff like that. Um, but I, w- I wanted to ask Phil because I know that the, the low carb thing, the rigid low carb thing, uh, and you know what? Maybe we're even pissing some people off by having a discussion like this. Every so often we have people stop <laughs> subscribing to the show. And I think. I always wonder, are these like keto people that <laughs> didn't like what we had to say, you know, because people have a belief system. But uh Phil, do you think it's harder to get changes in your athletes as opposed to like if they came in, quote unquote, with a broken metabolism?
1: Oh, yeah. And and even like you were talking about age, age does make a difference. Um, but, yeah, I'm seeing it more and more now. I mean, uh, uh Either somebody that's way over fat and trying to fix that <clears throat> or lots of under eating and somebody that has a metabolism that's just is way down regulated, and convincing them that <laughs> you need to eat more gain weight to get leaner and more muscle mass um, can be a struggle. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think it's almost like the law of diminishing returns. You know, another training principle, if someone's really good, it's hard to. Hard to see stuff sometimes, but, yeah, but, probably. and yet it's remarkable. There's thousands of people, Bill, like you were saying earlier, and I totally agree. And Mike, his clients are like this. They want to see changes in an already healthy range. You're not just trying to make okay. somebody who's pre-diabetic slightly better. I mean, there's so, so many opportunities for those people. You know, they don't do much muscular activity. They, their diets is, are, could be cheese puffs and beer or whatever. You know, there's all these opportunities, but in, in these really fit populations, I don't know. You tell me, Bill, does it seem harder? Are you able to bump people out of homeostasis and get adaptations? It sounds like you are.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, we're the, the, the females that we're testing. So a lot of my work is in resistance trained females. Their starting body fat percentages are probably in the low twenties. So they're not stage lean. So they do have some fat to lose, but by all, normal appearances they're in good shape it's only the the stage lean look where one would say oh yeah they have a lot of fat to lose so these girls you know are relatively lean not stage lean but relatively lean and through what we do and we typically do about a 20 to 25 percent caloric reduction we keep protein high no less than 1.6 grams per kg We, we we consistently get fat loss a um, couple pounds of fat. Um, I'm trying to think. It, it ranges anywhere from probably about two to five pounds of fat mass in that period of time. And, and another important thing is we supervise their workouts, and, and there's research to that, that validates if you're supervised when you're doing your, your training, your results are going to be significantly better than if you're training on your own. So that is, an, that is another high – it's another characteristic that I need to point out because if you're training on your own, maybe you're not quite as motivated. Um, mm-hmm. But the the one thing that I would say that I've that I should know this, but it still nevertheless amazes me. The individual variation from one subject to another is amazing. So uh-huh. yeah, we're losing four pounds of fat. Some girls are losing nine pounds of fat another girl's losing a half a pound of fat Mm -hmm. it's uh when i actually am um in my flexible dieting study i am now um i put my figures with because my my numbers are usually about 40 to 50 subjects actually 30 to 50 uh, a typical range and i'm now publishing the individual response rates and when you when you put that data in a figure that highlights the individual changes it's very visually um, evident that <laughs> it doesn't matter to no two people are alike in, in their response.
0: Yeah. Mike, you often talk about those individual responses and I, I mean, yeah. you, you see that a lot because of genetic differences or maybe it is to, to your point earlier about compliance and you know, the psychological aspects of motivation
2: and all that. But um, what are your, what are your I thoughts? I seeing the raw data in there because I think, when you work with clients one-on-one, it's like I get averages and statistics and all that stuff. I'm not saying it's worthless. But when you are trying to translate that into working with the N of one in front of you, it's nice to kind of know what the range was, even in the research, because that kind of gives you an idea of where your, your boundaries and your constraints are. Um, so I think that's super cool to see. And exactly what you said, Bill, like the amount of variability is way higher than what I think most people realize. Because they'll look at the average and they're like, oh, but I'm not even hitting the average or I'm way outside of the average. And if you look at the data in the study, then that, quote unquote, could be completely normal.
3: Yeah. Or yeah, you're yeah, you're in the the a third of the subjects in this study. Yeah. Literally, if you're talking about clients, I don't have clients now, but if, if I were, I would just refer them to the figure in my study and say, look, yeah, you could be anywhere from here to here of people where, where they have validating them, where, they, where this data is legitimate. I, I think that would be a powerful visual and a great way to start the expectations for a coach-client relationship.
2: Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing Stu Phillips presented ACSM probably seven years ago, was looking at some studies in uh, hypertrophy training studies, supervised weight training, everything. And you see most, you put up the raw data graph, right? And you see most of the people kind of right around the middle, there's two guys like two standard deviations like way up at the top, and there's one poor bastard at the bottom who got weaker and smaller. Oh. <laughs> you know, but if you if you looked at the average of that data, you'd be like, yeah, that's kind of what we expect. But when you see the scatter plot and you look, you go, well, yeah, like what the hell's going on with those two, and what happened to that poor bastard? You know?
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um. Okay. I, I think that's. About it as far as time goes. Uh Bill, is there anything that you might want to share with listeners? Just um is there a way they could reach you? I mean, I know you don't like work with clients and that kind of stuff. Um you talk about your lab or what you're doing with industry, your organizations, anything you want to leave people with if they wanna follow up yeah. and look at your stuff.
3: Yeah, I'll just add we're we're just about to finish a, a diet break study. So it's, it's, this is in females. They're dieting for two weeks, taking a week off, dieting for two weeks, taking another week off, then dieting again. And then the other group's just dieting straight for multiple weeks on end. So uh, next time we, we do this podcast, I'll hope, hopefully I'll be able to give you the results of that study. But the the best place to follow me is on my Instagram. It's really the only place that I'm active on social media. Okay. Uh, And that is at Bill Campbell PhD and I need to give um Dr. Mike a lot of a lot of kudos and credit for many years yes. just calling him, having trying to eat lunch with him at conferences, just learning, what should I do? How do you do this? And et cetera, et cetera. So um I finally chose one and <laughs> I'm I'm happy to say that I that that's the best place now where I can actually have a conversation with, with people who are not my students.
2: Yeah. And I got to call you for Instagram tips now because you're crushing it. I was talking to Sue Kleiner about that the other day. I was like, I got to call Bill and see what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) You're crushing
3: it. I I don't don't do anything else.
0: (laughs) I hear you though. You almost got to pick one of them. I mean, unless you're like a content creator full time, I don't know how people have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. They're just going down this huge list of stuff and I, you know, unless you have a marketing firm you're hiring or something, I, I, it seems crazy to me. But
3: no, I think you're right. I think a lot of those people, though, that's their full time job, uh, and 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 they have people to help. You're right. Yeah. Okay. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for joining us
0: this week. Uh, thanks, Dr. Campbell. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good stuff. Uh, we'll follow up next week with everybody, and we're going to talk about Phil's meat. So, if you're totally into the powerlifting uh, competition. Range of the spectrum, that's going to be one for you. We'll see you next time. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average, boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening.